the information, suggestions, and ideas of the podcaster or any other non-accredited, unqualified guests are exactly that, opinions, and do not constitute professional advice, counsel, or prescriptive recommendations for our listening audience. If you need help, seek professional help and do it today. Welcome to the Unlimited Worth Podcast. We are normalizing the narrative for men who have healed from their childhood trauma by sharing stories of happiness, success, and love. I'm on a mission to encourage millions of men and the families who love them get the support and healing they need so they can realize their unlimited worth. Daniel Halinda, thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure, Michael. Before we get started, you know, you've been you know, a pretty impressive career of 30 plus years as a senior healthcare executive. You've worked with the Canadian Cancer Society, Calgary Health Region, HIV AIDS movement as well. And during the 20 years you spent with the Canadian Cancer Society, which is where we ultimately, you know, our origins of our relationship began, you designed fundraising strategies and led teams that raised over a staggering $850 million for amazing world-class research and best practice patient programs. You are a three-time cancer survivor and you are currently, I guess, in active inpatient care as well for that. So Daniel, thank you so much uh, for joining us and I can't wait to get going on this. Grateful to have the opportunity to uh, speak with you and your audience. Awesome. I'd like to remind you, naturally, wherever we are, we're always in a safe place. This is, you know, we are on a mission to normalize a narrative for men and to ease the conversation about trauma. It's my goal as a coach to make a cosmic ripple, I say all the time. It's a commitment to help other men uh, by nudging them, reassuring them, opening the door to seeking help that uh, they'll be better off for it and uh, they can't keep going the way they're going today without uh, so-called fixing themselves, if you will. So Dan, you know, you and I've talked a few times to say the least, over the last few months. And it's refreshing in our age, you know, as we get past the midpoint in our lives to know that we can clear all the bullshit away and get straight to the stuff that matters. And I think that that's refreshing. How about you? Well, I think it's beyond refreshing. It's it's so nice to live in a world where I'm grounded. You know, having a, a, a childhood survivor of trauma, I lost my innocence at a very young age. Uh, and so for me now in my 60s, uh, the world is just full of adventure and surprise. I'm embracing it all. I also want to congratulate you because this work is so important. I suffered way too long with the typical myths of stereotypes of what men are about. And the role models I had were probably the worst I could have had. And I am just grateful to be here present today. I'm so happy to have you. Uh, the one thing about this wonderful level of authenticity you can work with is you can just get right to it. So why don't we get to it? This is about trauma. This is about healing and coming out the other end and being well. And it all starts with an event that sometimes we don't look at in the same light until we have to. So tell me a little bit about your journey or story of trauma to maybe help the audience understand a little more. Sure. We're first generation. My father came from Slovakia when he was a child. Uh, his father had left him in Slovakia, which his mother uh, uh, died giving birth to him, he ended up with the grandmother. Uh, she passed away, and then they tracked him through his father through Salvation Army. And could you imagine this little boy being put on a boat for months at a time in an orphanage and then showing up in Montreal where his dad was, and the dad denied it he was the son. Um, so his trauma, 
this is generational trauma that we live with. It started then. Uh, fast track, he uh, was in World War II. He was a, in the Navy. He had two roles. He was a marksman um, in North Atlantic on the front of the destroyer where they would shoot the mines under the water. Uh, when I look back and think what kind of pressure that must have been for him, and he was an anti-aircraft gunner later as well. The only reason I know this, because he never talked about it, the only reason I know this is I've been searching his records uh, and found out that uh, when the war was ended, he had spent some time at the Ready Memorial Hospital in Montreal and Verdun, uh, and at that time, that was a psychiatric institution. ATSC, they called it shell shock. And so my dad never had a chance to heal. Uh, I have two older sisters and a mother. Uh, she's Irish, he's Slovak, for a lot of fun at weddings and funerals. My dad became a binge drinker to fight his demon. Had multiple jobs, big guy, big, big microphone. Imagine I'm this little kid and I see this man that's the size of a giant. Uh, he's known in the community, everybody loves him, but he had his own demons. And so Thursday night he'd start drinking and by the time Saturday night came, he was in an obliterated state and uh, at a young age, uh, not every weekend, but many of them, my role was to protect my sisters and mother. I was told to do that. And I would go in and while well, he was sitting at the table in a drunken state, found out later that more than likely it was a post-trauma psychotic state. Mm -hmm. uh, and my job was to, to remove any weapons he had. And he had a favorite 303 rifle, which he used as a marksman. And a 303 rifle will put a dime through the front part of your body and a size of a antelope on the way out. So I knew, because I had been hunting with him, I knew, I knew the damage it could do. And so my trauma started then. I just thought it was every little boy did it. Um, I was asked once, what is your first earliest memory? Probably around eight. I always knew instinctively that this is crazy or something wrong, but I thought everybody went through it. And I thought, you know, it was the right thing to do to protect my sisters and mother. But I didn't realize at that young age that I was, in fact, a sacrificial man. That's unbelievable. I can only imagine. I mean, right now I, I look at you and you're a large man. You're a tall man, uh, a man of stature. and and just imagine the little kid staring, you know, down the barrel of a gun of the person who loves him. With any of us that have early child trauma, you go into that fear, flight, fauna mode where you're in a heightened state. The back of your brain, the reptilian brain, is always the switch is always on. So I was incredibly alert all of the time. But I can tell you through most of my teenage and adult years, I didn't sleep much. And you can't sleep much when you've had childhood trauma of that magnitude because you never know when something's going to take your life or somebody's going to take your life. And so you live in a heightened state. It was uh, when I turned 16 when I realized one day, uh, and it was the only time I hit my father back. And that was traumatic for me because he would, he would throw a beating on me. And, and the culture I lived in, everybody kind of denied it was happening. My sisters, my mother it was like, you know, wasn't that bad. I'm thinking, well, you're in the bedroom sleeping. I'm getting pounded. But what was interesting was how people normalized it. And so I started to act out of control. So I became a little bastard kid that got in a lot of trouble. And, and, uh, and in that process, when I turned 16, I realized that he was going to hurt me or kill me. And I would probably defend myself and hurt or kill him. And I didn't want that on me. So I left at a young age. I left him and made my own life that way. Now, fortunately for me, I've always had some good role models. At first, I said I had some bad ones. But my uncle, Bert, who is my dad's best man, they met during the Navy. And they both married the sisters. 
my uncle Bert was a very gentle, caring, crying man. And so he gave me that sense of hope. And I lived at times at my aunt and uncle's home with my cousin. My cousin lives here in Calgary. Uh, we're like, we're more brothers and cousins. I'm just blessed that he's older than me. I'm blessed that he took care of me when I was lost. Mm-hmm. And they always found a soft place for me to land. So I was very fortunate in that way. The damage that it does to you, as you know, childhood trauma, wow, it patterns your life. And uh, and that's that was the beginning of my journey into uh, PTSD and my journey into You know, thank you for that. Thank you for sharing that. When we look at the way trauma, you know, you mentioned it, it has profound effects, you know, for the most part, especially in our youth and our young adult lives, or maybe (laughs) in our middle age, like it did for me, um, we don't realize how profound it is. So when we begin to become aware, we look back with clarity and we become aware of all the things that seem so obvious today. For you, you know, how did you, like you, you mentioned a little bit, but where did it manifest the most for you? How did tra- the trauma, when you look back in your life, how did it manifest itself and play out for you? And, and were there patterns? Yeah, yeah. It, it's, you quickly put yourself in positions to accept everything's going on. One, that constant fear you're going to be really injured. Two, you absolutely feel worthless. That you're just not worthy because if I was worthy, why would my mother protect me? Why would my sister protect me? Why would my dad do this? As a child, you can't have that sense of reasoning. You can't, you know, you don't, nobody talked PTSD in the 60s and 70s, right? So, so you live with that piece. And then the third one is the shame of the secret, the shame that goes with it. Because who do you talk to? Who do you tell? And I tried a couple of times with friends and they just looked at me like, what are you talking about? That doesn't happen now. Sorry, I just stopped talking to you. About and I just you then start to internalize it, and as you internalize it, you pick up some really bad behaviors. And the one that I picked up was I lost the ability to feel. Hmm. I couldn't tell you what an emotion is, and the reason I couldn't tell you emotion was because I remember sitting vividly at the kitchen table. Right now, I can close my eyes and describe the wallpaper and the green chair and the lamp above his head. I can describe it over and over and over again, and in that moment you're kind of stuck. You're stuck in this trauma. You don't fully understand it. You certainly don't know how to get out of it. So I spent my life trying to excel at school or sports. Uh, I was the extrovert. I was the person that everybody kind of rallied. I I was the rallying guy for everybody, you know, the parties. Uh, I was the connector for people. And I was the extrovert. And all of that was for fear of people finding out the shame of my secret. It's so frequent. Almost everyone I will interview or have interviewed <laughs> will have some form of this, is that there's this degree of elevation uh, yeah. where men have strived beyond. And, you know, maybe help explain that a little more because often, you know, we end up positioning ourselves in places that we appear successful, yet we're struggling in the si- inside. And sometimes we don't even know how we are struggling. How did that, like, like striving... You know, clearly there's control, a need for control there. So where for you was that the most obvious? I excelled in, you know, I got two diplomas and three degrees, one's a master's. Uh, three of the four of those were done while I was working full-time and going to school full-time. You know, I, I would take on these jobs that people just thought, like, how did you get that job? You know? <laughs> I, mean, I remember working for the, when I came to Calgary, working for the John Howard Society, and I was running the support groups for men in, in drug and, you know, I was 23 years old, <laughs> you know, 
So I, people would look at me and say, oh, he's, he's doing more advanced things for his age, but in many cases, wasn't a good thing. And I can tell you that the trauma shaped my career path hmm. because I've always gravitated towards people who have been victimized and, tra- and traumatized. And I've always gravitated to, to workplaces that are almost impossible to do. Go work with Irish young offenders. Go work in the sexual abuse area. Go work as a funder uh, for the city of Calgary. Uh, then recruited to work in the HIV AIDS movement, 89 to 96. You know, AIDS phobia, homophobia, fear of contagion. You know, none of that was a danger sign to me. I didn't see the danger signs in everything that I did. I just thought, oh, I need to accomplish more. I need to accomplish more. I need to accomplish more. 20 years ago, moving into the cancer movement. And, and, then, and in many of these cases, I started to become a care provider for people. Too many to count. All that does is retrigger your trauma. And I think, I think guys like me try to find trauma relief to doing extraordinary things. But let me say to the audience, it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. I mean, sure, you don't accept the goodness of who you are ever. And you don't accept the accomplishments that you've had. I remember a good friend of mine saying to me, Dan, you've been in, you've been in so many end-stage situations with people. You have to understand that most of us get two and it's our parents. Mm-hmm. You've had several hundred. And it kind of dawned on me, yeah. So living in that trauma place and living as, as an adult, if you don't watch it, you drive yourself into the ground and you either end up with a serious health issue or you end up with a cardiac or you end up with a suicide attempt. Uh, in my case, I was medicating myself too much with alcohol. Uh, and I would tell everybody, I'm okay, I'm okay. I mean, I feel so sad that I couldn't have been a better spouse to my life. People said, you know, you're a great husband, you're a great father. But I remember the quiet moments when she would look at me and say, you know, I know you're here, but I don't feel your presence. Let's talk about that. What I've learned is there are areas of our lives that we find ourselves, like, first of all, as a protector, I mean, that's clearly, you took on a role as a protector, although you may have been also in a life-preserving mode all the time, too. Often men that I speak with actually have something really, they have it together on some part of their lives, often either personal or professional. I know my shortcomings became a cycle and repeated patterns in professional existence achievement and then to a point and then something happened. Maybe help me understand where was the biggest reflection, you know, how these patterns and this underlying trauma affected you? Was it, do you think it was more in your personal relationships? I mean, obviously you clearly had positives in your professional scenario and did the two ever come together? So the biggest toll was in the personal and people would say, man, he's just a great guy. And I would say, I'm not a good guy. I live with the demons. I can't sleep. I had such a high tolerance for pain, but I never knew when there was something physically wrong. I still have a bit of that pattern where packing my house up by myself, going up and down the stairs a hundred times, <laughs> uh, carrying you know, the movers came in to take some stuff to an eat society. And they said, how the hell did you get that thing up the stairs? And I said, oh, I got it up here. I almost had two cardiacs on the stairs. <laughs> and so finally I said, no, I'm going to go see my neighbor to ask him for some help because this is crazy. So all those things inside you know, and there's no worse feeling on the planet, in my opinion, than feeling that you are unreal and a phony. I eventually, it started to change for me, and I eventually started to see some good things that I did. 
And I, and I eventually had a moment in time where I was faced with the reality of my trauma that I had to do something about it. And, uh, and that was a, <laughs> one hell of a journey when that started. You shared with me in the past about probably the, the most stark moment for you when, you know, I, I, I hate the fact, and this is why I do this whole podcast and this whole Unlimited Worth project, because yeah. we got to normalize it because there, there shouldn't be a moment, like when we're good, we think, oh, we got it licked, right? When we're flying high and when we're really low, we're like, we're not going to show our vulnerability. We're not going to share that with anybody. But then there's the insurmountable pressure that forces it out of us. And I don't think we all have to go through that shit no. in order to get it out. I think we can open the conversation earlier for men. They don't have to suffer for you. You had this insurmountable pressure moment. If I recall coming home and then just curling up, you know? Yeah. So I was working in the AIDS movement. I was a care provider for dozens of people. I had gone through the, the death of our board chair who invited me in to be his care provider with, he was this beloved man. He was a gentleman. He was a great guy. And I never understood why he chose me to be part of that process. And I now know he chose me to teach me things because hmm. he knew that I was going to get a lot of that in that movement. And at that time, uh, I was 33 when I started with AIDS Calgary and everybody but two people died younger than me. Hmm. And you would see a young guy in his 23, 24 year old coming in for lunch on a Friday and next Wednesday would say, Hey, how's Tom doing? And they said, we passed you tonight. Wow. They went wow. that quick. It was unbelievable. And I had this moment. So I, so add all these memories up, like your childhood trauma. There was a young boy that I worked with when I was working in care who had been sexually abused by his father and his uncle. And he was eight or nine at that time. And the family was a ranching family. They had money. And they, he would serve 30, 60, 90 days and with us. And then he'd go back to the family, come back more damaged, more damaged. And, and then I left that job at a couple of years later and you know, we're, you fast track 10 years later and I met AIDS Calgary and we used to cook supper. And one of the ways I would relate with the guys is I cook for them and we chat in walks this young man, 20 years old, 19 years old. And he said, Hey Dan, he smiled. And I realized it was the eight year old boy. Wow. And that just, that just served me. And he, he didn't last very long. So it was a couple of years after that where I was coming home and I was deteriorating and mentally health deteriorating and isolating myself and medicating through alcohol. And my wife was very concerned for me and was trying everything from cajoling to being angry, rightly so, all those things. And I, I woke up in our driveway and I do not remember the drive home, which is wow. pretty scary when you're driving downtown Calgary. And I had a memory of every person who I had met at that time, I think it was six years in. Every person, hundreds of people had to die, and I had a memory of every one of them. And I was completely overwhelmed. And I went downstairs, I curled up in the bed in the fetal position. I'm not too sure if she remembers this. I have to ask her. She came down and asked me if I was okay, and she thought I was on drugs. But I couldn't talk. It was incoherent. And so she went and stayed at her mom's place. My daughter was, I think, maybe a year and a half old. And I knew I was going to lose, I knew I was losing the family. So I went to see someone I knew who was a counselor to say, what's going on with you? This is what just happened. And she said, um, there's this new therapy out. I think they call it post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, I have a colleague who's a psychologist that's trained in it. You should go see her, which I did. And I was so frustrated because it was talk therapy. And these are the things I didn't want to talk about. Right. Oh, 
You don't want to talk about your bad beat and the shit out of you. You don't want to talk about being punched through a wall because it's not normal. You don't want to be talking about removing weapons and discharging the bullets and, you know, taking the trigger. You don't want to talk about those things. But at one point she said, I'm going to use a new therapy on you called EMDR, self-hypnosis. You're going to be in control. And the whole issue, Michael, was I was afraid to let control go. Because mm-hmm. I thought if I let it go and started absorbing openly these memories, it would kill me. It would take me And in fact, it is the opposite. Just scream to your audience. Don't suffer. The more you talk to the right people who understand it, you've got training and trauma, the better you will become and you'll get more and more grounded. So that was a pivotal moment for me. And I think I did EMDR every Friday, every second Friday for a couple of years. And I still had, you know, I still had issues going past that. But each year things started to get, I started to get more and more grounded, more and more present. And I knew I had a long way to go. And I did. It was another 20 years. But today, it's so fantastic to be present in all situations. And when I'm faced with trauma, I don't use the old triggers. And I triggered a lot. But I don't, I don't fall into the old patterns anymore. And uh, yeah, I saw a therapist recently uh, who does dialectic behavior therapy, DDT. I was doing that to support a family member. Who was in that therapy? I thought I was going to learn how to help her by knowing about DBT. And uh, the <laughs> counselor was the most fascinating, honorable counselor I've ever met. And, and the DBT started to help me. And what it is is it says that trauma, childhood trauma, and adulthood trauma is a brain injury. And so you've got to train your patterns of how you think because you go into that switch goes on. You go into all those old behaviors. Some of them will save your life. Some of them will take your life. So I had a two-year journey with her, and every time we met, I got more and more grounded, more and more grounded. And finally, she said, hey, you don't need to come here anymore. Mm. <laughs> You've got enough of your skills. And some of the skills are really cool. It's, um, if, I'm in a, if I'm in a stressful situation, I will pour, and this is all done through brain mechanics. It's all done through, through research into the brain. I will pour cold water on my face for maybe half a minute. It drops your blood pressure by 15, 20 points. I have a blood pressure machine. I used to test it. Uh, and then exercise is important. We all know that. But it's really important when you're in a trauma situation and you're triggered. Uh, I would go into a body plank that used to take three minutes to get your brain, your body stopping its vibration. And then after the plank was done, I could then go sit and meditate and reflect. Because what do people tell you when you're stressed out? Michael, be calm. Michael, go calm yourself. How can you calm yourself when your brain is so fucked up? The synapses aren't connecting. You've got nothing but a thousand trauma moments, right? And you got someone <laughs> in your face saying, calm down now. Calm down, Michael. Calm down. Uh, yeah. It doesn't work that way. So for me, DVD worked really well. It still works really well. And I also have an app that I took off the American Veterans Association where I can monitor my mental health. I fill out a questionnaire every couple of months to see what's going on. If I'm in a really stressful situation, it tells me I'm falling into an old pattern and what to do to get out of it. So my suggestion and recommendation to anybody in trauma, don't suffer. Find the right people. And let me tell you this. I think we all know it. Not all the therapists out there are great. Some like to create dependency for themselves because it's their self-therapy. Very mindful who you're choosing that's gonna that you're letting into your brain and into your heart. You, know, <laughs> you want somebody who's not going to abuse them. People are so picky about the massage therapist they get. And right. most of that is a placebo. <laughs> it just feels good. And if it feels good, it's going to work. 
we're talking about real fundamental core brain rewiring brain chemistry neural pathways you know you said it and i can even you can even see it you know we're doing a podcast but i'm also interviewing you face to face and i can see it in your face when you considered what the somewhere in the middle of emdr when the trauma is removed like the anxiety of all of it uh just lifts right and you're able to then process other stuff i always say it's no less than a miracle well and it is it's retraining your brain to the help of of a very good therapist that can help you open up those pathways i remember the first couple times i went i went this is bullshit i'm looking at this line (laughs) she's asking me these questions and then all of a sudden and i i used to have what any war veteran would have, I would have screaming fits and night terrors and sweats. Wow. I'd wake up with would be soaked. And then all of a sudden I'd have a dream that each time it was reliving the trauma or, or how your brain lives the trauma, right? It different characters in it. And all of a sudden I woke up and I wasn't exhausted. I wasn't in fear and I wasn't agitated. And every time this would happen, it would get better and better and better. Honest to God, well, I hardly slept. I think I probably slept four hours in a 10-hour night. And it's a broken sleep. You don't have your REM period. You know, my physicality was horrible. I'd get a cut. It wouldn't heal for months at a time. You're in this heightened state of pouring back 30 cups of coffee, which isn't helping you. You are not in what they call as wise mind. And it's not your fault. You see, that's the thing. It's not your fault. Your brain's been injured. Once I found out that, once I started to learn that it's a brain trauma, that took the, you know what that did? I remember sitting with Melanie, my counselor, who was a DVD counselor, and I remember saying to her, it is so refreshing to be able to face trauma without falling apart, without thinking there's a boogeyman out there, that around the next corner, someone's going to take my life. It was, I don't have to live in that fear. And I also don't have to do that aggressive response. If we were in a crisis, People would say, that's the most amazing guy you want beside you in Christ. He'll run into a building. He'll do this. It's on fire. He'll do all those things. And I did. But what they didn't realize is the quiet moments I couldn't stand. Right? right. So I wasn't, I wasn't this great, courageous guy. I was reacting with a, with a dysfunctional brain that just wasn't allowing me to perform at a level that I really was. It's funny. I know I've covered this before with people. It's like bravery is about running into that burning building. And bravery is innate. You know, you're prepared so you can act. And you don't even think about the risks. In fact, or you've already checked off your criteria and said, it's good enough. (laughs) I'm going in, right? And then there's courage. And courage is assessing all the risks when we have neural pathways and patterns that we've created that are about self-preservation for whatever trauma that was that threatened our existence, if we rely on those, we don't have good cues for this so-called courageousness. And I share with you, I never felt courage in my life for doing anything. I felt bravery. I know how to act. If a major trauma is happening, I can save someone's life. I feel very comfortable in that moment. But if I have to consider whether this might be a good decision for me, I relied always on skewed instincts. Does, does that resonate with you? That resonated a thousand times. I mean, it, it, it's, it's the truism of overcoming trauma. There's your view of reality, my view of reality. Occasionally, there's a thing that I call universal truth that is so real and so undisputed. You can't, you can't dispute it, I should say. Uh, and that, what you just said, is one of those things. People who have been traumatized, it's, and it's what I learned working in cancer, 
And the earlier the intervention, the longer serving, the better the results are. So what we used to tell cancer patients all the time, go get, go get your testing. You can prevent this. And if you have it, if you detect it at an early stage in cancer, there's five stages, zero, one to four, or it's terminal, you'll, you'll have a better chance. It's the same thing for mental health. It's the same thing for post-traumatic stress disorder. It's the same thing for anything to do with mental health issues. I had a fascinating conversation with my ex, came by for supper, uh, and I was talking, we were talking about resilience, and she's a social worker, and she was telling me the new literature on resilience is that it's a bunch of bunk, and that's not her words, that's my words. And, and I got a little defensive, and, and then I realized she was absolutely right. People used to say to me, man, you are so resilient, and that was setting me up for failure, to not get the therapy. Like people would say to me in the AIDS movement, man, how do you do it? How do you help those people when they're dying? And I'd say, I'm good, I'm fine. You know, oh, you're so resilient. And I was building this falsehood of narrative about myself where inside I was collapsing. The trauma triggers were increasing. The nightmares were increasing. The desperation was increasing. The sadness of seeing young men and women die before they even had a chance to explore anything in their adult lives. Inside, I'm going, well, I'm a therapist. I know how to manage this. I'm doing just fine. Um, <laughs> sure so, you are. So after that moment with her the past weekend, I won't let anybody call me resilient. Society does a lot of strange things to keep us in our home, as you know. And the worst one is, and, and that's why we work so hard with my son, as I know you do with your son. And I met your son on, on uh, Zoom calls, and he's a lot like my son. We taught them to show their emotions because we never were able to. Right. And you know, from your journey, and I know from my journey, I haven't shared a lot of stories with my kids about my childhood trauma, but they know some of it. Mm -hmm. And they are the most compassionate, my daughter, my son, emotional, caring, able to show that. So if we can help our sons and daughters live with emotion, they're going to overcome anything that's different. And it's heartening to, you know, when you're in this position, there's, you know, one or two, one in six, one in five, maybe uh, men have experienced a childhood uh, trauma. And, and that's a staggering statistic in itself. And then you know that there's other people who haven't. I look at them now and go, oh my gosh, this is what you lived like for your life? 40 years of my life, I spent living a totally different reality and I didn't even know what my reality was, but it certainly wasn't this healthy one <laughs> where these patterns were healthy. And now I'm like, this is how it is. And what gets me, and I'm going to ask you if this is your case as well, is that the patterns I didn't know that were happening, now that I'm aware, I can totally see how I'm unfolding in front of the world at the time. And those patterns, that shame, the guilt, and all those emotions that got connected to how I was living my life or navigating my life, now I look at emotions and I, I just simply look at them and think, boy, I'm happy today or yeah. I can trust. And it's not attached to anything. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like everything else used to be so connected to the bad or the pattern. And now it's, it just is. Happiness rises, you know? 100%. I think as, and I use this language, for me, this whole 50, 60 year journey has been to reclaim my innocence. In some ways, people find me really honestly playful now. I laugh a lot more. I'm more present in the world. And in that presence, when I had my first cancer journey 11 years ago, I came out, they took a melanoma out of my head, out of the skull. And I remember coming down and feeling relieved. And the first thought I had was like a shower. 
and mm. pulled my ring shell covering my body. And I thought, I can spend the rest of my life being authentic because I may not have a lot of time. Thank God I'm still here. It's 11 years later. I've had two cancers, same journey, same cancer. But, but each one just wants me and I crave to have authentic conversations. Your breakfast meetings are the most authentic group meeting conversations <laughs> I've ever been part of. That's why the people are coming with deep stories. I think we find out that many of us have been traumatized or been around trauma or have a sense of social justice about wanting people not to have trauma. Uh, in my profession, the social work profession, I say this tongue in cheek, but I think there's truth to it. The joke is eight out of 10 people come from a dysfunctional family. The ninth one is in denial, and the tenth one is lying. <laughs> I know a, a lady took exception with me saying, "So this is what it's like to be normal," and it's reasonable. She was interviewing me for her podcast, and I get it. She doesn't think anyone's normal. A normal is dysfunctional, and and I just meant, you know, this is what it means not to have childhood trauma. <laughs> so that's what I think normal people have. Like, if at least majority of people don't have that, but, yeah, um, yeah. but they all know it, someone it, has. Well, and, and, and that's the next journey of this part of my life. It's uh, how do I keep on going forward and spreading the word? That's why I'm a champion for you, what you're doing. How do you, how do, you do this? Well, it's very simple. Have authentic conversations with people. Ask them questions. Shut up and listen to them. And never give a lecture or advice back to them if you're telling them. Mm-hmm. I am stunned. I had my house selling and I had to have some repairs done on it. And one week I had five contract types come in here. And they come in and we chat. And they'd see my, I have a sink in the Canadian Cancer Society thanking me for my service. And we would talk about it. And I tell them a little my background. We have these authentic conversations. Every one of them broke down crying, talked about the childhood trauma. I asked if we could talk again, said it was the best conversation they had in years. And it wasn't because I was the great guy that they had a good conversation with. It's because it was the first time they could talk about the trauma. Right. Now, if that's, if that's an isolated incident, and that's a snapshot of what's out there, it's big. This is really big. And it's so important that we help people talk about it. And it's so important that we build networks where they can get the care provision that will help them. I'm so fortunate to have found, found this journey, you know, and I'm so grateful that I've learned some actual techniques that I don't have to talk about the trauma. I got to go into a plank or pour cold water on my face so I can get to that <laughs> point where I can be meditating, right? Everyone's saying to me, go meditate. Uh, how can you meditate when you're reliving, you know, 60 years of trauma inside <laughs> your head? It's impossible. But if you do the exercises of the mind, then it gets you to your heart. Oh, that's so... When you do the exercise for your mind, then it gets you to your heart. I have maybe two questions as we come to a closure of this. One question I have, curiously, my wife knew. She was one of the very few people on the planet who knew my story. And yet she never, until my own crisis not long ago, didn't think I needed to get help. At every point of the way, I needed to get help. (laughs) Clearly, now now you look at it, it's so simple now. It's not so simple in practice and in life. And if left to our own devices, I would have happily kept mine a secret another 40 years. I was going to figure it out and just get through. How would you help or how would you share methods or what would you help people who live with people who they know have something or suspect, you know, that there's like so many signs, that there's like something up and you, how do you help the families or the people who love that person 
I think the key is to help that family member. When I'm dealing with end-stage cancer patients and their family, uh, and it's very traumatic, I say to them, how do you show love to your dad? And they'll start describing it. And then I'll say, how have you shown love to your dad as he's dying? And they say, well, I, I, I'm not. I'm not showing him my emotions. I, you know, I don't want him to know that I'm really sad. And I said, well, that's really unique and interesting because I just talked to your dad two hours ago. And he's given me permission to let you know that he thinks you don't care as much because you're not feeling sad as he's dying. So I think it's about that authentic conversation. When I approach people who I know have been traumatized, I try to use language that is non-judgmental. Yeah. And I've done it with my own children. It's not, I don't become a dad, I become a coach or a mentor, right? So in a professional context, you're a coach, I'm a coach. Well, you've got to do the same sort of thing. You've got to let the person unmask themselves. And you've got to let them know that you're there to be there with them for the long haul. And I didn't have that. I didn't have people say they understood. And when people who got close to me and they started to know my story, they would say, you know, Dan, I, I don't know how you could have gotten through that. I don't know how but I'm so glad you're here. That was so healing because I knew they were in for the long haul. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. And the other thing is any of us that are close to a family member or a loved one, don't do therapy with them. <laughs> we're, <laughs> we're not therapists, right? And don't say, well, I know Auntie Jones, Sisson's cousin who sees a therapist at this group home. And no, no, no. Trauma-based uh, treatment is very specialized. There's three or four modalities. Uh, takes a lot of training and expertise. All the trauma therapists I know, they see a trauma therapist mm -hmm. because you're absorbing all that on your body. And that's called compassion fatigue. And so find the right therapist. Don't be afraid to ask people questions. Shut up and listen. And sometimes when I'm talking to a, a person uh, who's, let's say, in stage cancer, the first thing I always say to them is, I'm sorry, you have to go through this. Because most people forget to say that. So I'm talking to so I have a friend of mine just declared his trauma. And I just said, now I'm so sorry. That shows compassion because they see your eyes. They see the eye contact. You're not over talking them. A lot of people will just start to get anxious and nervous. They don't know how to manage it. And right. you met those people and they just over talk you or they shut down completely, which adds to your shame. Such great advice, words of wisdom uh, that you're sharing. It's sage wisdom. And I don't think you could have laid it up any better. You mentioned about how do you share that you love your dad. Let's end this off. You know, how do you reconcile um, with sure. what happened with your dad? Sure. At the end of the day, was there forgiveness? Was there reconciliation? Where Where is your heart? Uh, totally wide and open. When I, um, and, and I'll just we'll push back. I'm not a sage and I don't have wisdom, but I got a whole lot of experience. <laughs> you know, you know, and here's what you know. You know enough that you think you don't enough. know anything anymore, yeah. which which means that whatever comes out of your mouth is probably helpful. So I yeah. consider that a sage. <laughs> so, well, thank you. My dad and I never got to know each other, really. He could not even accept that he victimized other people because he didn't know that it wasn't his fault. It was because he himself was traumatized. And it was living out intergenerational abuse. And that's a fact. That's not mm -hmm. an assessment. That's a fact. So I had this recent experience. You're one of our colleagues in your breakfast meeting. He's a military guy. They're trying to create a not-for-profit to help veterans that come back from the war theater to deal with their post-trauma. Uh, and, and through the use, instead of opiates, which kills you, through cannabis. cannabis. Mm -hmm. uh, and I remember saying to him before Christmas, hey, if you need some help on designing it or some fundraising strategies, I can help you. We've hit it off, and it's been one of the most healing experiences, and I'll just leave you with this. 
one of the guys said, tell me your story. I told him my story. And the clarity that came to me was my dad did not have the skill set or people around him to help him deal with the severe post-trauma. But I have, and I do. And I can now fight as a legacy piece the war for my dad that he couldn't fight. And as soon as I knew that, as soon as that moment happened, it was a three-complete circle. Mm-hmm. And at that moment, I found nothing but full acceptance and love for me. And still do. And I'm going to live this project out. I'm an advisor to their board that we've created. I'm going to be in for the long haul till they have success. And every time this happens, I'm just touching my heart, looking up uh, and saying, this is for you, God. And this was the man that perpetrated that story because I understood his journey. That's wonderful. Um, from the bottom of my heart, appreciate the story of your trauma, of the journey and the perspective that you bring along with, you know, fortunately people are able to listen today to hear you, you're, you're, you not only have perspective, but you have some clinical wisdom as well. And I know that I'm using that. I'm just throwing that around okay. with you, man. And I, I really think the value of, of that cannot be under, overstated. So I thank you. And I really appreciate you as a man. And if other people, sometimes people want to reach out. Should they reach out? Can they reach out? Like get a little more of the Daniel Halinda. You know, it's a very strange planet we live on, especially through this whole COVID experience. The world, the danger, the economy, everything. It's time for us to rally and be there for each other. Mm. Uh, I won't turn my back on anybody who needs to reach out. So, uh, 100%. Because I don't want them to take the long boat to healing journey that I took. I want them to do it in whatever short period of time and healthy period of time that they can do. Because I can't tell you how precious and beautiful life is. Every day, no matter what's going on, no matter what's going on at my plate. Uh, it's just so good to be there. So yeah, they're, they're more than welcome to reach out. Amazing. And uh, any information will be on our podcast episode listing so people can find you there. Dan, once again, thank you so much for being a part of the Unlimited Worth podcast. I can't tell you or thank you enough, but I know we'll be talking you know, frequently. So thanks again. It's my pleasure and honor in uh, this initiative that you're doing. There's me and a whole bunch of other people 100% behind you. So Let's get to that million number. We're sharing the Unlimited Worth Project podcast, book, and my speaking engagements worldwide so we can normalize the narrative and encourage conversations between men who have healed and men who need to, while reducing the drama and sensationalism in the media and seek the treatment and support they need to heal. They are worthy of love and success. When they know this, they can realize their unlimited worth. All guests appearing on the podcast have done so voluntarily. We do not require a fee from our guests. They have had the chance to express any concerns they might have and consented to their voice, image, name, and likeness in video or audio format to be used by Mike and the Unlimited Worth Project. This podcast has been edited for content and clarity prior to publication. The podcast content and likenesses are owned by Mike Skripnik Fit Family Enterprises, Inc. and the Unlimited Worth Project and our producer, Anibus Media. Redistribution without prior written consent is prohibited. The information, suggestions, and ideas of the podcaster or any other non-accredited, unqualified guests are exactly that, opinions, and do not constitute professional advice, counsel, or prescriptive recommendations for our listening audience. If you need help, seek professional help and do it today.